Scripture this morning comes from Genesis 47, verses 13 through 27. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all of the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, so that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh." So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Hey, good morning, everyone. In another remarkable, albeit low-key display of the good and uninterruptible plan of God to bless his people. We find that Joseph secured all of Egypt for Pharaoh and therein demonstrated that all glory belongs to God. It's one of my favorite titles. I've been able to give a a sermon in a while. All, All Egypt for Pharaoh and in the process, all glory to God. Under those banners uh, and from this text, there are three main takeaways that I hope I hope you all leave with. Here they are. Number one, God is infinitely glorious. Number two, God's people are always blessed by God in order to be a blessing. And number three, faithfulness to God, as we've seen over and over in Genesis, does not mean comfort or ease necessarily in this life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the continuation of this story. We thank you that in the beginning of Genesis, we get the beginning of the story. And uh, it's been many, many years. We don't even know how long from the first chapters until now uh, in in the, the course of your creation and your people. 
And there will be many more years to come until Christ. And many years after that in the Bible, as we read of the early church and many years since until we stand before you today. I pray that by looking at this this narrow glimpse into the larger story of Genesis, which is a narrow glimpse into the larger story of your redemptive plan, we would see that you are infinitely glorious. We would recognize freshly that you always bless us to bless and that you would help us to understand that faithfulness to you in this life does not necessarily and certainly not always mean comfort or ease or prosperity. Help us to see those things, I pray, ultimately, in order that we can give you all the glory that you deserve and live in all the ways that you mean us to. Fill us with the knowledge of your presence by your Spirit through your Word that we might, as Pastor Mike read and admonished us earlier, clap our hands and sing for joy in the knowledge that you are King and that you are reigning, that you are our God, and there is no greater news than that. We thank you that we get the first tastes of that through your covenant with Abraham and the fulfillment and the fulfilling of it through Jesus. Open our eyes to see the wonderful things of your word. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. Remind us that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, uh, let's let's begin with a quick recap. Kids, I, I, I love narrative stories like this because they're they're really easy to get our heads around, but I love them as well because there's a lot more to them than we can see right on the surface. But let, let's start with the surface. It seems that this famine that it, it had encompassed the land had gone from bad to worse. In, in 13, we read this. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So the the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. If you were in Berea this morning, Matt helped us to see that you ought to look for repeated words or repeated ideas or descriptors. And in this, the thing that we see the most, the thing we're, we're meant to see, are the amplifying words, three of them in the sentence, in all the land, very severe and languished. Each of these modifiers are meant to ensure that you and I, the readers, the first hearers, understands how dire the situation is. It was bad, and it's getting worse. A famine in year one is not pleasant. A famine in year two and three and four and and on is worse and worse and worse languished, very severe in all the land. The famine dreamed of by Pharaoh and interpreted and prepared for by Joseph, all by God's hand, was in full and crushing swing. Everyone in and around Egypt was suffering its effects. All of the food reserves among the people were gone now. You have to stop. (laughs) You have to consider, I mean, some of you, some of us have tried to buy toilet paper in the last couple of years and it was hard to come by and we thought, oh my goodness. Imagine being in several years of a famine where all the food, not just a shelf, not just a section of something you would like, 
not just in one place, but all of the food reserves are now gone in, in you and in your family. Consider how af- afraid these people must have felt. To keep themselves from starving then, the Egyptians willingly, the text tells us, verse 14, gave all the money that was found in the land of Egypt in exchange for food. Joseph collected it and brought it into Pharaoh's house. And subtly, the idea here is Joseph was being faithful. This idea of not keeping any of it to himself. It's meant to highlight his honesty. He didn't skim off the top. All that he brought in, he brought in for Pharaoh and to Pharaoh. Without a doubt, that was a desperate measure by the Egyptians, and one that would have left this vulnerable people, this people who already felt vulnerable and were vulnerable, feeling more vulnerable still. No no food, but at least we have our money, and now we just spent all of our money as well. So they were out without their money now, but at least they had their lives, <laughs> at least they had their animals, at least they had their land, and at least now, once again, they, they had some food. But as you can imagine, in a famine this severe, the text tells us that it didn't last long. They spent all that they had to get what they could, but it didn't last long. With no more money to purchase food, though, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? And in response... Joseph sold food to the people in exchange this time for their livestock, their horses, flocks, herds, and donkeys, for their animals. The people agreed to Joseph's terms and sold all all of their animals for food. Well, (laughs) this desperate, vulnerable people just became a little bit more desperate and a little bit more vulnerable. They had given up their money and their animals, but at at least they had their lives, their land, and some more food. Well, predictably, because the text doesn't tell us that the famine lifted, it tells us that within a year, they were out of food and desperate once again. Again, feel this. Grace, parents, feel this. What What would you, I mean, maybe you're okay with you being without food and you can handle it, but imagine watching your kids and husbands, your spouse, endure this. Again, within a year, they were out of food and desperate once again because the famine, verse 20 says, was severe. Another modifier on them. Again, their plea was, there's nothing left in the land of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, the text says. Buy us and our land for food and give us seed that we might live. And so for Pharaoh, Joseph purchased all the land and all the people. In Egypt, it tells us from one end of Egypt to the other. The people became servants of Pharaoh, and their land too now belonged entirely to him. And there's a sort of rapid succession. Three things happen really quickly in the text. The passage describes three interesting things that are going on in all of this. First, it notes that the priests will see this something similar to this later uh, among the Egyptians, or among the Israelites, that the priests of Egypt had a a special arrangement. Things were a little different for the priests with Pharaoh, such that they did not lose their money, land, or freedom. 
Second, we're told that Joseph not only acquired the people and their money and their animals and their land, but also 20% of everything they would produce in perpetuity. And third, the people were so desperate. My, in first reading through this, I thought, wow, this sounds, this sounds a little bit exploitive. Like, it sounds a little bit like he's taking advantage of the weak. But the third, the third thing we see that's interesting and just happens right in a row is that the people were so desperate for food, they, they sensed their peril so much that they seemed genuinely eager for this arrangement. They didn't, there's no evidence they felt exploited or that Joseph's conditions were unfair. On, on the contrary, we, we see in verse 25 that they seem to feel even thankful for this. So the passage ends then with another strong statement. The whole theme, the whole movement that we've encountered here with Joseph is the shift from God's awesome promises made. He made awesome promises to Abraham and to his offspring. We see this shift, this movement from the awesome promises that were made to these awesome promises being fulfilled. And so we read these words in 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, and they gained possession of it. And were fruitful and multiplied greatly, just just as God promised they would. Well, just like last week, this is a, a, a relatively simple but remarkable story for the chosen people of God. But also like last week, you you ought to be if you if you heard this well, wondering what does this have to do with us? <laughs> How do we take this and and think about it rightly in terms of the church today? As I said in the introduction, there are three main takeaways in this text. And I want to, I was saying in the, in the prayer room, the, the whole Bible thrust of this passage is awesome. (laughs) The main implication and application for you and I today, I'm saving for the conclusion. It's meant to be, you know, like the slow drum roll building to this. And I, I want it. I want you to feel it as deeply as you can, in order that you might leave with this. But, but because of that, I'm, I'm saving it to the end. All of these things are meant to serve to feed that. Here are the three themes that I want you to get first, so that the is it a crescendo? Music people, it's a crescendo, right at the very end when the kettle drums are just. I mean, they're going to pop. All right, that's where we're going. But these are the the three things that get us there. God is infinitely glorious. God's people are always blessed by God to be a blessing, and faithfulness does not mean comfort and ease in this life. With each one of these, we're, again, kettle drums are going. So here's the first one. This is one of those passages in which God is invisible in one sense. It should be, I think, easy for you to see that he isn't mentioned explicitly even one time. On the surface, it appears to be little more than a straightforward account of Joseph's shrewd business practice. At the same time, however, this passage does not exist in isolation. Matt did a a good job of helping us to see that, and Mike and John over the past few weeks in Berea, these passages only have the fullness of their meaning in their larger context. So all by itself, in the narrow sense, it seems almost atheistic. But never do these passages exist only in the narrow sense. Within the larger context, God's glory and power are impossible to miss. 
Joseph's very presence in Egypt, how he, how he got there, his place in Egypt, his understanding of the famine and how to navigate it, his fa- favor with Pharaoh, and the remarkable thriving that he's experiencing when everything else is seemingly falling apart are all clearly, in the larger context, we're told, owing only and entirely to the hand of God. So why choose this passage of relative silence where God isn't mentioned? Why choose that as an opportunity to talk about the infinite glory of God? Why that? And the answer is because so much of our life oftentimes seems like this as well. Oftentimes we go through our day with the type of silence from God, or seeming silence anyway, that we read about in this passage. There's no better time because God's glory is never diminished. It is never less just because our experience of it comes in and out at times. This seems like the perfect passage to highlight this for that reason. God is infinitely glorious. A few years ago, I I wrote a little bit on this, and I pulled out three things from that clause. God is infinitely glorious. Three things, and I want to briefly mention each of those things. If you miss any of them, you miss how spectacular of a claim this is. First, there is a God. (laughs) So many people today purport to believe in God. Think about this. Think about yourself. Think about your neighbors, your family members, your coworkers, your friends, kids, the the kids on your block. So many people today purport to believe in God. Yeah, I I believe in God. I I believe in a higher power. I, I believe in a supernatural being without even batting an eyelash. You'd think they said, yeah, I had broccoli for dinner last night, right? The radicalness and amazingness of the claim that there is a God is all but lost inside and outside of the church all too often. We speak of the existence and work of God so casually and flippantly so much that the claim comes across more like more domesticated, like you can pet it like a neat little puppy or kitty or something, than the staggering, earth-shattering claim that it is. Don't sleep on this, Grace. Don't fall asleep to the fact that if there is a God, that has sweeping implications for everything depending upon the nature of the God, right? And that leads to the second thing. There is a God who is infinitely glorious. The first thing is that there is a God. (laughs) Second is that he is glorious. One of the most significant discoveries that can ever be made is, is that there is not only a God, which is big in its own way, but that God is glorious. I've shared this many times with many of you in many different contexts, but for most of my life, I can't say that anymore, actually. Uh, I've been a Christian now longer than I wasn't, but for much of my life, I believed in a semi-personal, generic, grandfather, butler-type God, lowercase g. This was a God who was powerful, but certainly not omnipotent. It was a, it was a God who was wise, but certainly not omniscient. It was a God who was a, occasionally concerned, maybe even usually concerned, but certainly not perfectly intimate and personal. This God was worth paying attention to, but certainly not fully surrendering to. This God was good, but certainly not perfect in every way. 
In other words, my understanding of God had some similarities with the one true God, enough to trick me into believing that I actually believed in God. But I know now by the power of the Spirit, the revelation of God of himself in his word, that I was a million miles from believing or recognizing or even seeing and understanding the glory of the God of the Bible. And that leads to the third one, the third observation. There is a God who's infinitely glorious. There is a God... He is glorious, and third, he is infinitely glorious. Sunsets and mountains and newborn babies, certain paintings, books, musical compositions, roller coasters, all have a type of glory. They're not ordinary, they're not plain, they're not common, they're not dull, but their glory is contingent and finite. Grace, God alone possesses a glory that is original and infinite. Please don't fall asleep on the fact that the God of Genesis 47, 13 through 27, the God of Genesis, the God of the Bible is infinitely glorious, greater than you can ever imagine. I have four passages. Would you put the first passage up? It's on there, right? I have four passages in the Bible that capture this, or at least begin to. My hope is that one of them, I'm going to read through four of them, move through the Bible from Old Testament to New. We get the prophets and the Psalms, the the epistles, and then Revelation, a, a different description from a different angle of the glory of God. My hope is that one of them would stir your soul in a new way. You can't get this passage. You can't get the gospel apart from beginning here. Nehemiah 9, 5, and 6. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, Genesis 1, with all of their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord, Glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in splendor and holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Sarayan like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
Revelation. And these heavenly creatures and elders sang a new song, saying of the Lamb of God, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Stand in awe, Grace. Clap your hands and shout for joy. And then ask yourself the question that this passage and the passages like it demand that we consider. Do you believe in this God? Is this your God? If this is not what comes to your mind when you consider God, I submit you're not actually considering God. The God of the Bible is infinitely glorious. Don't settle for a too small God. And don't settle for a too small response to a God who is infinitely glorious. That's the sec- that, that leads to the second The second thing I want to highlight is in light of that, in light of who God is, infinitely glorious, we need to understand that his blessing, which is ultimately himself giving himself to us, his blessing, his blessing of his people are always meant to be turned back to blessing. God's people are always blessed to bless. God's The blessing of God always comes to us, not to bury, not to keep for ourselves, to hoard, but in order to be a blessing. And that plays itself out in two main ways. First, we are to receive God's blessing in whatever form it comes, and then bless God with it. <laughs> Above all, God's, bless, God's gifts come to us in order that we might turn them back to him in worship. I want you to get this. I want you to fight to get this. I've said this in two or three different ways over the last two or three months. I'm going to say it again in a slightly different way this morning. We've got to get this. This text forces us to consider this. Rightly understood, the greatest blessing of God's gifts, the things he gives us, isn't the gift itself as an end in itself, but that it gives us an instrument for worship. Okay, again, I've said that several times. Let me say it again. Picture someone you love hanging from a cliff. They're desperately grabbing on more than anything. You want to reach down and help them and rescue them. And, and so you, you reach with all of your might. You stretch as far as you can. But no matter what you do, you're a few inches short. No matter how much you strain to reach them, you can't. You long for something that would help you to get to them, to help them. In, in, in a way, that's what God's gifts are for his people. We have tasted and seen by God's grace and the power of his spirit through his son, we've tasted and seen that God is glorious beyond measure. 
And having done so, we long for ways to express that to God. How do we do that? How do we know a God who is infinitely glorious and turn that back to praise for him? Some of the best songs lament my my lack of language, my lack of vocabulary, my lack of strength. You can't yell loud enough to praise God in a manner that is truly worthy of him. You can't sing on tune enough or create a song or there's no language that's pure enough to capture the greatness of the glory of God. And so just like we long to reach down and help somebody, but can't quite, to know the glory of God, to to know God is infinitely glorious, is to know in us we lack what we need to rightly turn that back to him in praise. We long for the right words. We long for the right actions. As hard as we try, though, we don't have that in us. That's where God's gifts come in. First, his son. His son has perfect righteousness and sits at the right hand, singing perfect praise to him. And we are found in him through faith, but also through his gifts. The gifts he gives us, a family and a beautiful sunset and the things he gives us, resources to purchase food and to be generous. These these things are given to us, rightly received as worship currency. <laughs> they're meant, they're, they're the instruments we need to give back to him in worship. So when God is our highest treasure, and he must be when we come to understand that he's infinitely glorious, we don't ultimately desire the things he can provide for us other than that they provide for us a way to turn them back to him in worship in ways we can't on our own. That's awesome. When God is our highest treasure, we ultimately desire more of God and then ways to experience and express that back to God. That is the essence of genuine worship. Again, then, God blesses his people as a means first to to give us the means to bless him. Don't let your blessing end with you, Grace. Whatever good you receive is from above. Take whatever good you receive then and use it as an object of praise, as worship currency. Consider how you might do that through your finances, your family, your food, your talents. Find a way to do that in, in a new way today. Second, having first received responded to God's blessings by turning them back to him in worship, we're to use them then to bless the people in our lives, friends and enemies alike. That is largely the thrust, that's largely the thrust of this passage. Joseph was blessed by God and he turned that blessing into a blessing for Pharaoh. And in that way, it is a fulfillment of what God said to Abraham back in Genesis 12. God promised Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God blessed Joseph. Joseph blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh blessed Joseph. And then God blessed Pharaoh. Grace, do you have, what do you, what, Grace, what do you have from God that you might turn to blessing for others? How specifically might you give more than simply the leftovers? You, you, you eat and feast and, and then, hey, whatever's left over. How might you give more than just the leftovers of your blessing to another in order to make it clear to them and to the world around you that God is your highest blessing? 
How might you be generous in a way that is inexplicable apart from your understanding that God is infinitely glorious and that he is your greatest treasure? God's blessing to us is never meant to end with us. It's always meant to be turned back to him in worship and then to others in service. Here's a third. Faithfulness does not mean comfort, ease, or prosperity in this life. Our passage ends with the words, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. This was clearly the result of God's fulfillment of his promise. The Egyptians were entirely enslaved at the hand of Joseph, and as a result, all of this was a time of comfort and ease and prosperity for Abraham's offspring. So what am I talking about? (laughs) It sure seems like that is the case. What am I, I mean, this is a time of comfort and ease and prosperity for the faithful. So why would I say faithfulness does not mean comfort or ease or prosperity? The final main takeaway for us to see before the crescendo is that faithfulness does not necessarily mean comfort, ease, or prosperity in this life. Again, where do I get that from this text? In verse 19, we read the starving Egyptians lament, why should we die before your eyes, both we and the land? Buy us for our land, or buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Having done so, Joseph and his family, again, now in this moment, knew freedom, prosperity, and control, while the Egyptians knew bondage, hunger, and service. So where do I get the idea that faithfulness does not mean comfort, ease, or prosperity? I briefly mentioned it this last week. I want to read it this week. Just four chapters later, (laughs) we're in finishing up Genesis 47. We have 48, 49, and 50. The fourth chapter is Exodus 1, and it says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The enslaver would soon become the enslaved. The comfortable would soon become the uncomfortable. The ones at ease would soon bear heavy burdens. And the prosperous would soon become the oppressed. All of this reminds us that our charge is to remain faithful to God no matter what the earthly consequences are. At times, as in our passage today, Our faithfulness might lead to immediate earthly blessing. And yet, we have no promise that that will be the case in this life, or even if it is, that it will continue. Other times, as our Lord Jesus said, in the early church, continually experienced faithfulness does not lead to pleasantness, but to persecution. We must obey God then, not because it leads necessarily to earthly comfort, ease, and prosperity, but because our faithfulness, which is a blessing of God, because our faithfulness through both blessing and persecution, in that we demonstrate the genuineness of our salvation and our claim and our claim to the everlasting blessing of heaven. Listen to First Peter. 
Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is, not in this life, but in the next, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is kept in heaven for you until you go there. Who by God's, who? Those of you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you're grieved by various trials because of your faithfulness. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The message here is do not set your hope on the fleeting, constantly changing things of earth. Do not set your hope on a kind of comfort that God has not promised you. Do not set your hope on the kind of conditions that come and go. Rather, set your hope on the permanent Christ-secured things that are above, kept in heaven for you, for all whose hope is in Jesus. All right, can you feel the drums building? In this passage, we see a dramatic contrast between Joseph and the Egyptians. At God's hand, Joseph knew nothing but plenty and prosperity, while the Egyptians knew nothing but desperation and hunger. This is perhaps most clearly seen in the fact, hear this grace, that the Egyptians had to come back to Joseph three separate times for food, selling more and more of their stuff and themselves each time yet always still needing more. Do you see this? They came back three times, more desperate and with less resources each time. They gave all that they had and yet still lacked. These things then point us to another greater contrast. Consider the Egyptians' experience in this passage in light of the promises of John 6. For the bread of God, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, the religious leaders, Sirs, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The Egyptians in our passage were hungry, and they kept getting hungry even after they gave everything they had in themselves. In simplest terms, they lacked within them the ability to satisfy their most essential needs. Grace, this physical reality, you can't understand this passage if you can't understand it in the larger context, which is to say this physical reality was meant to point us to the spiritual reality every one of us faces day in and day out. Even more than we need food, we need to be reconciled to God on account of our sin. Whether we feel it or not, our spiritual hunger is far greater and more serious than our physical hunger can ever be. And yet even, and yet we have even less of an ability in ourselves to meet our spiritual needs than we do our physical needs. The whole history of religion is mankind trying to spend himself to have this need that we know we have. 
Romans 1 tells us that we know there's a God and we know that we've fallen short of his glory and stand at odds with him. The history of religion is the history of man pouring out all that he has in every way he can think of to bridge that gap. The history of the Old Testament, the point of the Old Testament is to allow this people to try everything on their own and see that none of it works. Far more desperate than the Egyptians are all who are in Adam, which is to say all people. And yet we have even less of an ability. We can pour out all that we have and still fall infinitely short. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My earnest prayer is that you would all come to know the one and the only one who can truly satisfy, who alone is the bread of life, who alone can make it so that you will never hunger or thirst again who alone paid what you did not have to gain what you could not get. My earnest prayer is that you would believe in Jesus today in order that you might know the forgiveness of your sins, the satisfaction of your souls, reconciliation with God, and everlasting fullness.